President Biden's ghost gun ban faces another setback. Plus, plaintiff Reno May on California's handgun roster being declared unconstitutional. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no hold on me. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. If you want to get the latest on guns in America, you can also buy a membership while you're there. If you want to help support our reporting, we are completely member funded here at The Reload, and we uh, offer a number of perks to our members, including getting this podcast, this very podcast, a day early, and the opportunity to appear on the show, like some of our vaunted special guests. Uh, we'd be right alongside all of the newsmakers that we have on here, and we love doing those segments. It's one of my favorite segments, so um, go ahead and sign up for a membership today. Buy a membership, become a member, and support our work. This week, we are talking about the handgun roster in California and the ruling against it, which is why we have Reno May, a well-known YouTuber who is also a plaintiff in the case uh, and California resident on the show with us. How are you doing today, Reno? I'm doing good. I'm super excited. Uh, You know, big win, a big step forward for gun rights in this state and potentially nationwide. We'll see how that goes. But uh, I, it, it feels good to be starting out on a win. Um, this was a long time coming. A lot of people have been dealing with this law since before I was alive. And uh, I'm happy that I get to be part of this uh, movement forward for us. All right. And so uh, do you tell people just a little bit more about yourself and why you decided to get involved as a plaintiff? Yeah. Um, so my name is Reno May. I live in California, born here, lived here my whole life, got into guns and worked in a gun store for a little while, started making YouTube videos when some laws were changing because uh, things were just so complicated. Things were changing uh, rather than try to explain things over the phone. We figured let's just make some resources. Uh, gun store closed in about 2018 and I decided in 2019 to start making videos again. Uh, that kind of spiraled out of control and now it is a full blown second job for me. Um, Doing this has given me the opportunity to reach a lot of people and educate a lot of people about gun laws here. And, you know, I get a lot of comments saying, hey, like I was nervous to buy my first gun. And because of your education, I was able to confidently go into a gun store and get it going because not everybody is as well versed as you and I uh, into guns. And California is just complicated enough to where if you don't know what you're doing and you have no one else to hold your hand, it can be a little intimidating at time. So. This has been a great opportunity when the CRPA reached out to me saying, hey, we're looking for some plaintiffs. We think you'd be a good fit. I said, yes, absolutely. I would love to be a part of this. Um, I never thought that I would get to a point where I would be involved to this level, but I'm super happy that I have this opportunity because it's given me the ability to fight for what we all believe in at a more personal level. Yeah, it's interesting to see uh, someone with a uh, significant YouTube following like yourself mm-hmm. getting involved in a case like this. I mean, that's that's fairly uncommon. I mean, obviously, it's fairly yeah. uncommon for anyone to get involved in, in, <laughs> yeah. as a plaintiff in any any sort mm-hmm. of case. But uh, but yeah, certainly you sort of taken that extra step of of not just advocating through your videos, but also through mm-hmm. direct action with the California Rifle and Pistol Association there. So that yeah, that's something that. Um, you know, sets you apart a little bit. Uh, you've, mm-hmm. you've seen some other YouTubers, I think, become you know state directors at, at yeah uh, for GOA and 
Mm -hmm. There have been certainly people who are more involved in activism than others. And there's nothing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't mean to call out anyone, but it's just interesting to see, yeah. uh, you know, someone like yourself take that step of, of getting involved legally as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was given a great opportunity and uh, I, I hope that I can make the most out of it. You know, having a big following kind of helps bring more awareness to it and awareness to something that, you know, handguns are the quintessential self-defense firearm. So it's uh, going to be majorly beneficial to a lot of people. And I'm happy that this is something that I get to be a part of. Um, there's a lot of creators that have been involved and, you know, or with uh, other things. And it was kind of inspiring to me to see people get involved outside of just uh, news and awareness. And I was like, when I had this opportunity, I jumped on it. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about the law itself, about what you're challenging yeah. here. Can you just give people a background on exactly how the handgun roster works in California and the key provisions that you guys challenged? Yeah. So the California Unsafe Handgun Act, the UHA, uh, is a regulatory scheme that's put in place that we can only buy handguns that at certain points in time had certain features or characteristics were drop tested, safety tested, and added to an approved for sale list. So a long time ago, uh, in the era of Generation 3 Glocks, that meant um, it, it just had to be drop tested and it got on the list and they are grandfathered in. So they can still be sold today. In about 2011, I believe, um, the state required magazine disconnects which is a function of the firearm where if the magazine is not in the gun, it will not fire the round in the chamber. It also required loaded chamber indicators. So when there's a round in the chamber, a little flag sticks up that says loaded went up or with text says that it is loaded and also has some sort of visual and physical indication that it's loaded. So it has to and have text also, on it. it. has to specifically Yeah, it say has it? to have. Because mm -hmm. when I talk about loaded chamber indicators, people say, well, the Glock Gen 3 extractor sticks out so you can feel it and know that it's loaded. Yeah, It doesn't say loaded when up or loaded when protruding or something like that. It has oh, to so have the text. Mm -hmm. It's much more so it's, strict than, mm -hmm. uh, than you might. Because, yeah, loaded ch of, the, of the challenged features, loaded chamber mm -hmm. indicators are pretty common. Magazine disconnects really don't yep. exist anywhere outside of California. No. And, yeah. uh, and, and then we'll uh, get into the next one. But, high power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. like, but loaded chamber mm -hmm. indicators are pretty common these days. At the very least, you can to some have, extent, yeah. you can see into the chamber, or mm -hmm. there's some sort of uh, something sticks up or something sticks out that mm -hmm. lets you know that the gun is loaded. But but it sounds yeah. but yeah, that's interesting. So you actually have to have even more than just some kind of indicator <laughs> yeah. it has to be specifically written <laughs> on the indicator that it's loaded. Yeah, hopefully the person picking up the gun speaks English um, <laughs> or can read English. And then in 2013, the laws changed to require what's called micro-stamping. And what micro-stamping was at the time is they wanted on two locations of a spent primer on a semi-auto handgun in order to get added to the list of approved handguns would have to put some sort of serial number or marking index that could be traced back to that specific gun. Recently, a couple of years ago, it was changed to only one location, which is technically more feasible because the firing pin could, in theory, work. Um, the problem is this technology is hugely expensive, completely undesired by the market, and very impractical and borderline, I would say, personally, in my opinion, impossible to implement outside of a one-off instance. Um, so that was in 2013. So from 2011 to 2013, a few handguns made it onto the roster, like the Shield, um, and that's really one of the only ones. Maybe some car firearms 
that had the loaded chamber indicator and magazine disconnect. Since 2013, when micro stamping became a thing, no handguns have been added to the roster. Now, for a frame of reference, I could not buy handguns till 2015. So every firearm that I have bought, every handgun that I have bought in the state of California has been, by definition, an unsafe handgun because they were grandfathered in. Mm. Now, our court case, Boland versus Bonta, Lance Boland being the main named plaintiff, um, we challenged with our MPI, Motion for Preliminary Injunction, the loaded chamber indicator, the magazine disconnect, and the micro stamping. We got that. It, Judge Carney issued a ruling that I thought was very fair, very um, specific, and we got everything we asked for, which was surprising. Um, I was kind of tempering my expectations, didn't want to get too excited. I kind of hoped that we would get everything we asked for. Um, but I was expecting bare minimum micro stamping to get turned off, which would allow for a variety of firearms like the Smith & Wesson M&Ps had some of that integrated into it. Some SIG firearms already had that technology in the past, but they stopped paying for the fees and drop testing and that kind of thing to keep it on the roster. But um, we got everything that we asked for. Yeah. But with a 14 day stay. Right. So, right. Yeah. And we'll get yeah. in, we'll get into more mm -hmm. details of the ruling in a moment, mm -hmm. but uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about the, the law itself and some of its effects. Mm -hmm. Right. So one, you had, no new models of pistols have been added to this <laughs> yeah. list since 2013. Yeah. Right? That was a big point. Mm -hmm. That was a big point of contention in the, mm -hmm. the ruling from the judge. Yep. Uh, but also many have been removed in that yeah. period too, right? Yeah. Um, there have been challenges of this law in the past where uh, I think it was quoted in the 1500 range of different models. And that includes color variations. Right. But at that point, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago, uh, there were about 1,500. Now we have 832 on the roster. Mm -hmm. um, only 32 of them, including color variations, have magazine disconnects and loaded chamber indicators. None of them have micro stamping. Right. So all of these semi-auto pistols on the roster are unsafe per the state's definition. And we yeah. have no new guns. I am buying Gen 3 Glocks. <laughs> It's the only thing keeping I think three clocks going is, is this law. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and I believe uh, Chuck Michelle, who's the president of the mm -hmm. California Rifle and Pistol Association, said that there's only 200 distinct models mm -hmm. on that list. Yeah, that basically. sounds about right. Because, yeah, out of the you know, thousands if a, that exist. If a gun has a different colorway, you know, the shield has Smith Wesson Shield 1.0 has about six or seven different color models on it. And they're all the exact same gun, except one of them's OD green, one of them's blue, one of them's black, you know. So right. there's very few semi-auto handguns available. And they're pretty opaque about why they remove something from the list, right? I, mean, I believe yep. last year they removed the H&K uh, USPs mm -hmm. from the roster. Yeah. And we can only, but they didn't say why. Yeah, we can only speculate. I have some insider sources that it seemed to indicate that it was something to do with the sourcing of a small part or the manufacturing methods of something like a spring. Um, and we've seen similar issues with the Smith and Wesson uh, SD nine VE. I think was something to do with the takedown magazine disconnect mechanism. They manufactured it in a slightly different way or sourced it from a different uh, warehouse. Um, and that was removed from the roster as well. But the DOJ did not come out and say why it just in the middle of the year, 
the H and K's and that one model of Smith and Wesson just disappeared from the roster. And there was no press release from either H and K or the DOJ. Yeah. So effectively we've had this situation where no new models can be added, but plenty of Mm -hmm. models have been removed. And so it's whittling down the list slowly over time, basically Mm -hmm. uh, to where you're, you're going to be left with no handguns at some point. Yep. Um, in theory, uh, but, but yeah, so the other, there's another caveat, I think, or complication that Mm -hmm. people should be aware of, right? This is the unsafe handgun rust, uh, right. (laughs) But what, who gets exempted from this law? (laughs) Uh, law enforcement, including the horse racing board, I believe the department of motor vehicles, uh, and a variety of other law enforcement entities, um, all get excluded from this. And there has been a gray market sphere of law enforcement who buy these guns that cost four to five hundred dollars and then no longer wanting them and selling a used firearm for upwards of fifteen hundred dollars. So, yeah, so the (laughs) police in California are allowed to both buy and uh, carry on duty. Uh, what the state labels unsafe handguns. Yep. And uh, interestingly enough, the state's special witness from the DOJ, their expert witness on the roster, uh, testified in court that he carries a uh, Gen 4 or Gen 5 Glock, I believe it is, but he carries a gun that is not on the roster and is unsafe per Mm. the California definition and is not a grandfathered firearm like a Gen 3 Glock. Yeah, funny how that works, right? <laughs> yeah. If it was truly about safety, he would be carrying a gun that was safe. <laughs> yes. So uh you know, I think that, that pretty well explains how this this law works. Let's get a little bit into the ruling here. We've got uh Judge Carney who ruled this is from his preliminary injunction. He says, uh Californians uh, quote, Californians have the constitutional right to acquire and use state-of-the-art handguns to protect themselves, they should not be forced to settle for decade-old models of handguns to ensure that they remain safe inside or outside the home. Um, And he further went on and said, quote, these regulations are having a devastating impact on California's ability to acquire and use new state-of-the-art handguns since 2007, when the loaded chamber indicator and magazine disconnect safety requirements were introduced. Very few new handguns have been introduced for sale in California with those features since 2013, when the micro stamping requirement was introduced, not a single new semi-automatic handgun has been approved for sale in California. So, uh, you know, it seems he's come down on your side, Mm -hmm. uh, effectively um, believes the arguments that you guys made. Uh, Can you just talk a little bit more about what you think convinced him? Yeah. So um, Judge Carney was, I believe, a Republican appointed judge, which doesn't always mean that they're going to decide a certain way. And Judge Carney had not in the past ruled on a case like this. So going into it, we were optimistic, but we didn't really have a good track record. This wasn't a Judge Benitez who has issued multiple rulings on a case like this. We hoped for the best and In the hearing, he seemed to really want to understand where we were coming from, and he seemed to also give equal fairness to the state in hearing where they were coming from. So I'm. it seemed very crucial that we illustrated the 
effects of this. And Lance Boland, I think, was a perfect candidate for this. He's a firearms instructor in, in Southern California, and he discussed both how one of his personal firearms, a SIG 226 with a magazine disconnect, uh, failed on the range where the magazine disconnect uh, malfunctioned, and he could not load his gun and could not shoot his gun even with a magazine in it. He also went on to talk about how left-handed shooters have essentially no good options or very, very few options for a firearm that is fully ambidextrous or has a magazine release that can be put on the other side, which if you're a left-handed shooter, you know you either have to use your middle or index finger or use your support hand to press that mag release. And the slide locks, it's just you're adding seconds potentially or micro milliseconds to a operation that is crucial to perform as quickly as possible where seconds do matter a whole lot. Um, And I think that was huge. In addition, I spoke about how I've had loaded chamber indicators uh, break on one of my shields where it just no longer functioned. So if I was truly relying on it, which I never do, if I was truly relying on the loaded chamber indicator to tell me that that gun is loaded, I would either pull up a gun that isn't loaded or pick up a gun and think it's not loaded if I was relying on that, which I don't and no one trains to do. Right. Yeah. So as a a firearm safety instructor, Mm -hmm. you you do not rely on mechanical safety. No, you physically check and visibly inspect that the firearm is either loaded or unloaded. And if you're confirming that it is loaded, you might pull the chamber open just a little bit, see brass and say, okay, a round did strip off that. And now I know my gun's loaded. I put it in my holster and do whatever. Right. Um, it's actually very unsafe to rely mm-hmm. exclusively on mechanical <laughs> safeties, ironically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, so California brought up a couple of historical analogs that they believe justify these rules. Yeah. Uh, they first pointed to proofing requirements during the founding era where there was uh, there were barrels that needed yeah. to be proofed by inspectors um, and had to have you know a proofing mark stamped on them to indicate that they wouldn't basically blow up when used um, yeah. and then they also uh, pointed to gunpowder storage regulations from the founding yeah. era in some cities as well which were designed to ensure that gunpowder was stored in such a way that it couldn't ignite and cause the city to catch on fire basically Uh, yeah now uh the judge found that these weren't good analogs for Mm -hmm. for the handgun roster can you talk about why yeah so with the proofing laws it's very different to test every individual barrel to confirm that it's not going to blow up in an era where metallurgy is just (laughs) nowhere near what it is today um Requiring certain features, which is what we are challenging, is the specific safety features being enforced on us is not the same as ensuring that a firearm is made in a way that won't blow up. Um, It's just not similar at all. Uh, And with the proofing laws, first, at the time it was black powder, which was an explosive versus what we use now. Smokeless powder, I think, is considered an accelerant. And black powder is just a much more volatile substance. So it kind of makes sense that you don't store nuclear waste in your backyard. Um, So if we ever have a law (laughs) that we're trying to challenge to allow us to store nuclear waste in our backyard, maybe they can consider that law analogous. But requiring storage laws is not 
even closely related to safety features on a modern defensive firearm because we are not walking around with 28 pounds of gunpowder. What we would like to do is walk around with a normal handgun in public or within the home where for all legal purposes. Um, so the judge didn't feel that those were analogous and neither did our legal team. And we, our legal team knew that they were going to bring those laws up because those laws have been referenced in, for example, the Duncan Miller and uh roadie ammo background check um, laws, but they're just, uh, it's the closest thing they had other than banning black people and native Americans from owning guns, um, which they like to have their cake and eat it too, by saying, Hey, uh, we don't like racism, but Hey, uh, racism said you couldn't have guns at one point. So you can't have these, um, <laughs> which yeah. is, did they, did they cite that they try to cite those laws in this? I believe case? so. That yeah. was in their, uh, spreadsheet and they, they did the classic. We're not racist, but these racist laws that are unconstitutional, <laughs> just on their face um unconstitutional laws did exist at one point right right um so. yeah and so the, the judge concluded he, uh, he ruled the how and why these regulations burden a law-abiding citizen's right to arm self-defense are too different to pass constitutional muster basically he was saying that you know a proofing requirement which is meant to just demonstrate that the gun will work as intended and not blow yeah. up and gunpowder storage laws, which are intended to prevent, you know, accidental fires, yeah, really aren't or like spontaneous, you know, right? Yeah, aren't really comparable to, you know, making it to requiring a magazine disconnect and <laughs> yeah. a uh, and a loaded chamber indicator, let alone yeah. micro stamping, which he said was quote simply not commercially available or even feasible to implement on a mass scale. So, yeah, ultimately, he said, you know, there there really aren't any historical analogs, or at least the very least, yeah. the state didn't provide any that pass yeah. muster. Yes. And so that was why he, you know, under the Bruin ruling, right, where you have to, uh, for modern regulations that didn't exist at the founding, and obviously these didn't, yeah. um, you, you don't have to find a historical twin, right? You don't have to find a yes. micro stamping requirement from 1776, but you do have to find... <laughs> something that is similar in some in the yeah. how and why and, the vibes gotta be similar <laughs> right yes the vibe has to match um for our gen z uh audience yeah <laughs> um, but yeah so it's one of the interesting things we've seen in the aftermath of this ruling <clears throat> is some criticism actually from the right over how the judge came down to this position um Mark Smith from Four Boxes Diners, another popular YouTube channel, yeah. who's been on the show before as well. He's a sort of constitutional uh, expert, lawyer. And he criticized this ruling, not because of where it ended up. He said it's good that it ended up at this this point. But he argued that he didn't have to go through the whole Bruin analysis and look for look at the historical analogs because this is effectively a ban on commonly owned handguns. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your, your take on it. Is it, do you, I would imagine you don't really yeah. bother you either way. Uh, oh, no. yeah. Came down, but. yeah. Um, I think that Mark is very smart and I think that's an, a super interesting, um, look at it. The reasons that I think that we went around this was the big thing is when they appeal it to the ninth, they're going to look at, did the judge abuse his discretion? And I think this judge just wanted to be so blatantly clear 
I'm doing this because Bruin has said that this is a standard that has to be met to say that Mm -hmm. these laws are constitutional. And I think he just wanted to, or I mean, this is obviously, I'm not living with the judge. I don't have an inside track in his mind, but I guess my takeaway is we wanted it to be so clear. And we argued it that way to say, Hey, look, here's the standard. We're going to argue to the standard, even if the second amendment says shall not be infringed, even if handguns as a whole are a protected class of firearms, we're still going to use these rules so that you can't try to say that the judge uh, abused his discretion in any way. And like, yes, I agree that handguns cannot be outright banned. I totally agree with everything that Mark is saying. Um, I think it was just a matter of it's the strategy that we went in with and the strategy, uh, it worked uh, at this level. So certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I think Mark's right in terms of, uh, I mean, I think either way you look at it, yeah, you don't you don't necessarily need to do the full Bruin analysis because these handguns are in common use. They're they've banned yeah. the most popular handguns in the country. <laughs> yeah. um, and the, you know, you can't buy a Sig three uh, three six five or yeah. a Shield two point or a, Hel- a yeah. Hellcat or any of the guns that sell you know millions and millions of of units elsewhere in the country. And so it's totally. hard to argue that they're not in common use and therefore protected, especially yeah. because they're you're banning the kind of handguns that people mostly use first uh, turn yeah. to first for, for self-defense. But uh, so, yeah, it does seem like it would implicate directly Heller, but, yeah. uh, but you know, you do the Bruin analysis. And I mean, obviously one of yeah. California's arguments has been that it doesn't ban all handguns, right? You can still buy handguns. Uh, it doesn't infringe upon your right because you could still own a gun. This, is, this was their <laughs> part of their argument, mm-hmm. right? That, Mm-hmm. It doesn't ban all handguns, and therefore, yeah, it's not a total handgun ban like like what DC yeah. had in Heller. Uh, so that that is perhaps one of the complicating factors. But it does obviously yeah. ban a lot of the most popular handguns. So yeah. it does seem like you could get there through Heller, uh, but I mean, you basically would come to the same conclusion with Bruin anyway, because there's not a historical analog to banning commonly used yeah. handguns. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of getting the same point, maybe taking a slightly different route. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of reactions to this ruling, uh, you know, you've had some minor criticism from from the right, but on the left, on the gun control side, you really haven't heard anything it's at like all. Crickets. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting, right? What do you think yeah, of that? Yeah. So it's yeah. Usually when there's a ruling like this, like with the mag ban, the assault weapon ban, the ammo background check ban. Um, Gavin Newsom and the attorney general and all the state legislators, they all um, roll out the red carpet and do a little press release saying, you know, this is endangering our citizens. It's, you know, uh, you, you know, you're putting everybody at risk by doing this or it's politically motivated judge. The judge is in the pocket of the NRA. Yeah, um, he literally they, they said that all, about, about yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Benitez, right? Different yeah. judge, but uh, same idea. Yeah, yeah. And even though... <laughs> The Miller case is by FPC, which is a very different mindset. And the CRPA, while I believe has some connection to the NRA being an affiliate organization, is its own separate entity that gets yes. funding separately. Right. Um, so it's this time we all we got was um, nothing from the gun control groups. Gavin Newsom, I don't believe, has commented on it or he I hasn't. haven't seen him comment on it. Um, and the attorney general, Rob Bonta, basically gave a non-committal statement, basically saying that he's aware of it, but he did not commit to a challenge to this yeah. uh, through an appeal. 
Here's here's exactly what Bonta said. Uh, okay. They, they sent us this press release after the ruling came down. He said, the fact of the matter is California's gun safety laws save lives and California's Unsafe Handgun Act is no exception. We will continue to lead efforts to advance and defend California's gun safety laws as we move forward to determine the next steps in this case. Californians should know that the injunction, this injunction has not gone into effect and that California's important gun safety requirements related to the Unsafe Handgun Act remain in effect. So, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't commit to filing an appeal, which is, I mean, obviously in the immediate aftermath, you'll sometimes get these sort of statements yeah. from AGs. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to file an appeal, but yeah, the but complete we're, lack we're of coming up on a week. Yeah, you know, the, the lack Monday of comment week. is very yeah. odd. You don't you don't see anything from Everytown. Yeah. You don't see mm-hmm. anything from Giffords. You don't see anything from Brady. Uh, yeah, who have been comment who've commented on basically all of these rulings elsewhere, yeah. and you don't see anything from Newsom. So, yeah. what do you think is going on there? Yeah, you know, um, I think this kind of comes back to I just want to talk about the big picture real quick. Is everybody wants to see the NFA go away, and everybody wants to say shall not be infringed, and all gun laws go away, right? Um, but the handgun ban in this instance is the small bite that we take that allows us to take a bigger bite later, um, and I think the gun control groups are kind of looking at this and saying, okay, if we go all out against this and say that this law is like super important and handguns need to be banned in this way, they're kind of coming out against the most societally acceptable type of firearm. And I think they don't think that they will win long-term. So it kind of is compartmentalizing this to just California potentially if they don't appeal. Because if this goes to the ninth and has a positive ruling, it could have good impacts on states like Washington that are currently going through an assault weapon ban. Maybe some sort of argument being used here applies to what they're fighting over there. Um, So I think, especially considering that the Ninth Circuit kicked down all the court cases to Benitez with the assault weapon ban and the mag ban and whatnot, I think they kind of knew the Ninth Circuit knew they wouldn't be able to just easily overturn this and don't want to send it immediately to the Supreme Court after the Supreme Court just issued a very big ruling in Bruin. Yeah. So I'm it it almost looks like they might be picking their battles. I mean, like, I don't want to do the opposite of fear mongering of like building everyone up to just be crumbling back down if this gets appealed in two weeks. But um, in the past where it's been a zero percent chance the state doesn't appeal. Now we kind of have a non-zero percent chance that the state doesn't appeal, which would basically allow us in, what, uh, 10 days from now for manufacturers to submit firearms to be drop tested and safety tested and then added to the roster if the state doesn't appeal. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that's probably a a good take on it. Uh, it, It's a non-zero chance at this point. I yeah. don't think it's guaranteed yeah. that they won't appeal no. because it's hard yeah. to look. At, it's hard to look at the history of California and mm-hmm. think that they won't appeal yeah. because they always appeal. But when it's a hundred and ten percent chance in the past of appealing, now we're looking at oh maybe it's a ninety eight percent chance they appeal. That's yeah. <laughs> you know it is. Hey, maybe we're that two percent. Yeah, right. And and you know it 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 does make sense from a tactical standpoint as you explained there. This is probably one of the more novel laws in the gun laws in the country you know there are a couple other states that are flirting with micro stamping at yeah. this point in new jersey and massachusetts 
Yeah, but, Massachusetts has a handgun roster, right? Yeah, there's a couple handgun rosters. Yeah. They're, none of them are as strict as California's. Maryland has one. Massachusetts has one. Micro stamping is being a theoretical technology that not only is not imp- uh, implemented by any American gun company, but not anywhere in the world, which sort of gives <laughs> yeah. you some indication yeah. of the practicality of it. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that if if you're trying to think through it strategically in a post-Bruin landscape, yeah, if you're a gun control advocate, you probably don't want to waste all of your resources on the most likely laws to get struck down. And this would seem to be yeah. one of the most likely. Uh, totally. Probably should have been struck down after Heller, frankly, <laughs> yeah. um, for the reasons we discussed earlier. But so you might want to compartmentalize this one away and you know not not worry too much about yeah. well all right we 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 lost on this point at least these three points because as you mentioned there are still some parts of this law that were not challenged actually yeah just real quick why did you guys decide not to challenge the drop testing and the independent laboratory tests i think a big strategy of it was um i think we knew that we could win certain aspects of it and with I think a big part of it at the time might have had something to do with the California fee shifting um, bill that was passed. And basically what mm-hmm. that is, is a let's say you argue nine things and you win eight of them, but you right. lose one of them. The state mm-hmm. would be able to go after you for attorney fees for everything to do right. with it. So we wanted to kind of narrow this down. And Interesting. So that had an effect a- on your thinking. It possibly, um, you know, at least in my mind, um, cause I'm thinking, but, uh, the legal team decided to do it for a variety of reasons, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But a big part of it is, um, you got to fight the battles that you can win one step at a time. So eventually mm-hmm. we'll get to a point where the NFA goes away, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, who knows, you know, let's see, like, we'll see how it goes, uh, 20 years down the road. Um, but this was just a much more palatable thing to try to fight right now and it's showing that we were able to get this win where we could and you know if we get it to a point where any manufacturer could just add a gun to the roster uh they will because manufacturers were willing at the time for limited models to add loaded chamber indicators and magazine disconnects and still manufacture gen 3 glocks sure so if yeah they want want access to that market for sure yeah yeah Let's, you know, there's 40 million people in this state, let's say 30% of them own guns. I think that's about the stat. <laughs> if 1% of that buys a $600 Glock, that's a, you know, that's a, it's a big market. And mm-hmm. think about how many manufacturers have no access to the California market outside of yep. law enforcement. Yep. Um, Very true. You know, so, so, um, that, yeah. So that, that takes us to where, where do you see things headed? at this point where where do you where do you think they're going to do you think they're going to be you know uh sig p365s on sale in oh, california in a week and a half i think that if this doesn't get appealed which i'm i'm still you know fingers crossed i'm hoping it doesn't get appealed uh for selfish reasons but obviously if it goes to the ninth circuit and has a bigger sweeping impact on other states that would be awesome for a lot of people but if it doesn't, I think uh, other people in other states are going to have a hard time getting some of the handguns that they want because there's going to be a run on them. We saw this with magazines when we had that you know week, two week period of time where we could buy magazines. If you lived in another state, your store was out of stock for <laughs> three weeks because we bought all of them. Um, I think we could be in a time where I have access to affordable, non two to three times MSRP 
um, modern handguns, which is a crazy concept, <laughs> you yeah. know, for a Californian, um, yeah. for a Californian, yeah, for a Virginian, man, like, just, it's, that's, uh, yeah. run of the mill stuff, but, but yeah, for you <laughs> yeah. Guys, it's like, it's world changing um, as a gun owner, but, mm-hmm. uh, actually, so what, uh, what would, what would you buy first if you could select from anything you wanted? Oh man. So I think I would probably go with two things. Um, probably some sort of smaller subcompact handgun, like a 365, something like that in that realm. And then on the complete other end of the spectrum, something like a staccato or like a really nice 2011, um, something that like would be good for competition shooting. Mm. It's kind of like hit both ends of the spectrum because I got yeah. a lot of handguns right now, but I would like to have a better concealed carry gun that's smaller than a Glock 19. And I would like to have a more capable sporting uh, handgun like a 2011 that yeah uh, so yeah my bank account those, is not excited for it but i am <laughs> <laughs> those are the two areas where you've seen a ton of development in that time frame post 2013 mm-hmm. oh. uh, mm-hmm. that you guys have just completely missed out on uh sort Huge. of ironic yeah. because i'm i'm and i talk about this in our news update that come after, comes after the segment but i'm getting my I'm doing the training to get my uh, dc concealed carry license and so oh wow nice. now i have to do the think think the opposite way because I have to get a yeah. worse gun probably because <laughs> yeah. I'll have to comply with the ten round magazine limit yeah. and you so know you start I think it's smaller and smaller gun <laughs> yeah it's like I, I want to get an, a three sixty five X macro and mm-hmm. uh, you know have the that comes standard yeah. with fifteen or seven you can get seventeen yeah, something like that magazines yeah. for it and instead I'll have to I don't know maybe I'll just stick with the regular three six five or something <laughs> yeah something less ideal. Uh, yeah, carry, yeah. But, so mm-hmm. yeah, you, you might have the exact opposite. We might be going yeah. in the opposite directions here. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, ooh, I can get a small gun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So uh, tell me, uh, what's next for you? Or what do you? Uh, presumably, this might get appealed to the mm-hmm. Ninth Circuit, and you'd have to go through this probably for another several months at least before yeah. they're going to issue a ruling, if not longer. Right? That's the yeah. more pessimistic view of where things could mm-hmm. be headed. Yeah, I kind of I kind of always try to look at things uh, in the pessimistic side as far as like timelines, um, because I just, you know, like it it could be that bad. And if it's not, I'm pleasantly surprised, you know. Um, So if, you know, if it takes if they appeal and it takes eight, nine months to get a decision on something, um, I'm prepared for that. Um, I'm prepared for this to go all the way. I know the CRPA is prepared for this to go all the way to the Supreme Court if it needs to go that far. but, you know, I'm just happy to be along for the ride. Honestly, I'll testify anytime they ask. I'll give statements anytime they ask or anytime anyone asks um, because I truly believe in this cause. And I think that's really what's cool about being a part of this. The CRPA and uh, Michelle and Associates, the legal team, they're all they truly believe in this. And it's um, yeah, it, it could take some time, you know, if things get appealed to the ninth and then they get appealed on bonk to an 11 judge panel and then get appealed to the Supreme Court, it could be several years down the road. And, yeah. you know, when I signed up to be a plaintiff, I accepted the fact that, like, I would not move from the state of California, um, bare minimum for five years, because I wanted to just, like, be here for this. Um, I, I knew what I was getting into. And maybe it's done in two weeks. Maybe in two weeks, it doesn't get appealed, and it goes back to the district court to get some sort of, um, I think, it, let's see, I had it written down here. Um motion for summary judgment maybe they have us testify again probably won't have us testify again um but you know it's maybe it's done in six months and it's all just said and done and i california gets a win 
Um, maybe it's not. So either way, um, I'm ready for it. Yeah, I'm definitely of two minds about the direction this is headed because yeah. on the one hand, you know, California has not shown the desire to be yeah. more tactical in its approach to these cases. If anything, nope. they've shown a desire to push the limits as far as you mm -hmm. possibly could because they're passing yeah. new gun restrictions yeah. that and are extremely hard, unlikely yeah. to, to hold up under Bruin. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, you do have that weird bit of silence we've had mm -hmm. thus far. Uh, you, know, you can't read yeah. too much into it, but it does seem intriguing. Yeah, and I, I have to give credit where it's due. Um, uh, the state definitely tried to bite off more than they could chew, which led to uh, us getting the support of PORAC, the Police Officers Research Association of California, one of the biggest police special interest groups. Um, the Nancy Skinner drafted a bill that's going through right now that could pass that would basically make it so cops also can only buy on right. roster handguns. Um, and POREC in the past has been has been sort of on our side in a few times, you know, they've come out against certain things, but they specifically were like, when that kind of came out, in addition to the concealed carry ban bill that's being introduced, reintroduced, um, um, POREC will also reached out to the CRPA. Police officers. Yeah. And, and even just thinking of the logistics of being a police officer on duty, um, how do you like, okay, like this guy is carrying a gun and like, now I have to think about like, what's legal, what's not because he's on the sidewalk. Okay. Is that building over there a place that he can't be? And can he be on the sidewalk? Like it just, it's going to add a level of distrust to people that want to lawfully carry and law enforcement even further. So they reached out to the CRPA and said, hey, we want to support you in your roster lawsuit. And they filed a brief. And some of those statements were actually included in the ruling uh, referencing how most law enforcement chooses to carry unsafe um, Gen 4 or Gen 5 Glocks or like a SIG 320. Um, yeah, it would be so. really fascinating to see how that kind of uh, commotion would go down if they tried to prevent police from having access, especially yeah. on duty to these sorts of guns. Um, yeah. That's yeah. generally why they have those carve outs. So they don't have to deal with that yeah. sort of opposition. But, and, uh, and, you know, generally police officers as individuals all kind of tend to disagree with these laws. Sure. Um, but the police unions or police chiefs and some of the bigger liberal strongholds tend to support and file briefings yeah. in support of a lot of gun control. But the handgun roster has not been one of those where they've supported that law um, generally. Well, usually there's and, a divide between the sheriffs. Yeah who are, you mm -hmm. know, tend to be more rural, uh, law yeah, enforcement or elected and, officials, and police chiefs, yeah. yeah. Who tend mm -hmm. to be more urban, uh, law enforcement. Yeah. So usually you see that divide all over the place, but it's interesting that not, not yeah. so much in this case. Huh? Yeah. Now it's, uh, they're, <laughs> they're filing briefs for us, uh, mm -hmm. or for our side of the argument. So mm -hmm. it's good to see that because it's a lot harder for the Democrat politicians to say, Hey, we have the support of the people and it's putting law enforcement in danger when law enforcement, the largest law enforcement special interest group of the state is saying, Hey, this law sucks. <laughs> um, it's hard to say they have your support. Yeah. Um, that, that was one of the complications in trying to pass the uh, Bruin response carry bill the first time around as an emergency yeah. measure because the sheriff's yep. association opposed it for a number of reasons. Yep. And so uh, it's still likely to pass this, this session, yeah, but, the, but because uh, they're only requiring the 50% vote if it goes this time. But, right. you know, I think 
I haven't heard a whole lot of press release and talk about it. Usually the politicians that are trying to draft it and pass it, they, you know, they just post stuff on Twitter and social media talking about it, making press releases. It's, mm-hmm. It seemed a little bit more quiet this time around. So maybe they've seen how it's been struck down in states like New York um, yeah, New or Jersey. various other states. Yeah. yeah. So seeing those losses, maybe they're not. Maybe. As so maybe, maybe we're we'll seeing see. a sea change from California. They're going to yeah. shift to a minimization strategy to try and uh, avoid defending the, the least yeah. defensible aspects of their gun laws yeah. and, mm-hmm. and try to put their resources towards other uh, area because yeah. basically all of their gun laws are being challenged on a continuing yeah. basis. Yeah. So they maybe they maybe they've decided to change tactics there. We'll, we'll have to see. I mean, yeah. Perhaps we'll have you on again to talk more about yeah. some of the stuff that's I'd going on it. in California because uh, you know you're yeah. right there following it all and and also involved in it uh, from time to time yeah. as, as is the case here. But uh, tell people yeah. where they can find more of your your videos and and follow yeah. you. Yeah, on YouTube, it's just uh, if you type in youtube.com slash Reno May, I'll come right up. You know, guy with a big forehead, that's me. Um, on Instagram, it's Reno May period guns. Uh, I am on my third Instagram account at this point. Uh, and then on Twitter, it is just Reno May guns. And you can find me there. A lot of stuff um, doesn't necessarily warrant a video. So Twitter is usually a pretty good place. Uh, sometimes I'll just share things from your site or from other creators that are talking about stuff, press releases. Um, just to kind of keep you up to date on like the day to day of like, Hey, a brief was filed or Hey, here's some things that are being talked about that doesn't necessarily warrant, um, me talking for 10 minutes. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. We're always, uh, always posting something, always talking about something every day. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to see you guys there. Great. And uh, thanks again for coming on. We're going to head over to the news update segment now. All right, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing good, Jake. How are you? You got any uh, fun plans coming up for this weekend? Not too many fun plans, unfortunately. I, I got to work a bit this weekend. Uh, the fun I had was it was over the week. I, I renewed my out-of-state Utah concealed carry permit, and that was the first for me to, to do a permit renewal like that from an out-of-state permit. Um, How did it go? It actually was a lot smoother than I expected. It was even easier than here in Colorado. I just did it mostly online. They made me watch a, a, a brief video about suicide prevention, and then I submitted an updated picture, and it should be on its way in the mail now. It was pretty oh, that's easy. Good. Nice. Yeah, I'm still waiting on my Pennsylvania non-resident. I haven't heard anything back from Delaware County yet. So I hope that it's going to happen. I, I mean, if they, if they don't accept it, I'll have to, I don't know, I guess apply in York County or something like that. Something a little more obviously gun friendly, right? Part of the state, maybe we'll see. Uh, I they should accept. I don't. There's no reason why uh, that was where my old one was from. Uh, was Delaware County, and it expired. Oh, oops, I dropped my phone. It expired during the pandemic, and then they weren't accepting renewals. And now it's like sort of unclear. They have all. They all have online systems now, which is great because they didn't used to do yep. that. And. But it's sort of unclear reading through their website whether they will accept non-resident renewal or, you know, applications. And uh, so I put one in. They accepted my money. So I should get a permit back, right? Presumably. You'd think so. <laughs> but uh, it's still stuck in like, oh, your yours is being assigned to someone. They have like 45 days, I think, to go through with the process. So well, it's still – I still have a couple more weeks before that – deadline hits so we'll, we'll see what they do but 
yeah, still waiting on that non-resident. Now I'm actually this weekend going to take a concealed carry course that will qualify me for two other out-of-state permits that, I mean, I, I have the Virginia permit, right? I think we, we've mentioned this before, but that is good in 35 states. <laughs> it's one of the most accepted permits in the country, actually. And yet all the places I want to carry outside of Virginia, none of them accept the Virginia license. <laughs> uh, none of the neighboring states to the north, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New, New York, none of them recognize the Virginia permit for some dumb reason. And <clears throat> so now I have to go through and and have this whole collection of permits that say, yes, I've I've done gun safety training and I've passed <laughs> 15,000 back background checks I, so I can carry in your stupid state. But what, whatever, you know, and so I'm going through that this weekend that it's uh, I already did. They had a basic pistol course, the hybrid online portion um, that you had to complete before Saturday, which is uh, tomorrow for us uh, while we're recording this on Friday. But that was uh, fairly easy for me since I'm certified to teach that class. <laughs> but right. uh, it's nice to go through and have the refresher, the online portion of that course. The NRA did a pretty good job with it. You know, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, it does have some of the same problems with the purely in-person class, though, which is like some of the questions on the test aren't actually discussed in the lesson plans <laughs> that you teach. This has always <laughs> been something that fast that was and that has annoyed me about whenever I teach the in-person class is that like there you teach the I teach all the lessons that they give you to teach and on the test, there's still a bunch of questions, like four or five questions that are just not ever covered in the class for whatever reason. Uh, and so I always have to, at, when I'm done doing it, I always, because I, you know, I don't do it constantly like a lot, a lot of other trainers out there do, but I always have to go through and look at the test and be like, that's right, there's these like four questions. So here are the answers. They're like, here's, I'll explain the, what they're getting at with the, the questions. And, um, and that's the same thing in the online course. You know, you go through all the training, all the lessons, and they still ask you questions at the end that weren't covered. In the, <laughs> and I'm like, what are, what are you guys doing? I mean, I guess it must be in the, the handbook or whatever. You're supposed to read through the whole handbook to get these couple points that they don't cover. But like, if you got a class and you're teaching lesson plans, th that should cover what's in the test, right? You'd think uh, so. <laughs> you would think so. But no, uh, I made it through anyway, thankfully. And there were some nice refreshers, like some of the shooting errors, you know, uh, there's they, they break them out in more specificity, right? It's stuff that you would commonly call like uh, anticipating recoil right. or flinching. You know, there's there's a couple different components to that actual shooting error that the basic pistol course breaks out into like thumbing and, uh, you know, fingering the trigger and. Uh, they call they call it riding the recoil, um, which I've never heard anyone else use that term. But either way, like they, they that part was actually pretty good refresher, just give you a little more granular insight into some of the things that people could actually be doing wrong. A lot of it comes from you know jerking the trigger, but right. either way, that was good. I've got the uh, well, it's still an online portion, but it's an instructor led portion of the class coming up on Saturday. And then on Sunday, 
we have the actual in-person range portion, the first two. So Maryland, Virginia, you uh, need one session in person for the training uh, for, for the, at the range. Maryland, you need two. And DC, you need three, at least to get, I guess this is the way that this company covers all of the hours that are required by these various uh, states. So yeah, we'll see. I get at least the first two, I guess, on Sunday, and then they have to do another range session after that. Um, and then I still have to go through the whole application process and get fingerprinted. And <laughs> yeah, so it'll still be a little while before I can actually get the permit. And then, of course, D.C. was one of the pioneers of the expansive sensitive places doctrine that we're seeing in these uh, other blue states now where you know it's not as bad, actually, as New York or New Jersey, but it's still pretty limiting in where you can actually carry. You can't carry on Metro. So if you don't have a car, you're pretty much screwed already, which, you know, we've talked about some of the obvious problems with these regulations in the past and who they affect. Doesn't necessarily affect me. I have a car and I live outside of the city, but if you don't have a car and you live in the city, so so good your hundreds of dollars that you wasted on that permit were. Um, because you can't take it on the metro. You can take, and the ridiculous thing about it too is that you can carry on the metro, uh, the subway system here in the, the DMV, when you're in Virginia or Maryland. <laughs> so just <laughs> DC doesn't let you carry on the metro. It's uh, whatever. It's it's absurd. But so that's what I'm doing this weekend. I say it's amazing what a labyrinth of laws there is in just a small little geographical area that you have to try to navigate. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, and they, I think I've talked about it before, but they also have these roaming gun-free zones. Right, yeah, the sensitive around. places move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and DC, the sensitive place can sneak up on you without you realizing, <laughs> literally. Uh, they, the diplomatic diplomatic protection, anyone under diplomatic protection, so anyone in a, um, in a motorcade, basically, if they drive by you, I, I mean, I don't know what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I guess I'll find out in this class. I guess they'll teach me the specifics. Presumably, I think they have to, give you a warning to leave before you, they could try to arrest you for something like that. But yeah, in theory, you'd have to run away from them as they approach you. <laughs> if you're carrying. Uh, same for like protests. Like if a protest is coming towards you, um, you're not allowed to carry near protests. They actually have that in Virginia now too. Um, yeah. Whether they're permanent or should, should have been permanent, which you're supposed to know, I guess, as a, as a carrier, you're just supposed to have a sixth sense about is this, right. should this, should this group of people, should they have a permit for that demonstration? <laughs> and if so, I need to run away from them too. Yes. Yeah, if, if so, it's their just, permit invalidates my permit. <laughs> yeah. So I don't even know. It's, sometimes you do wonder if it's even worth getting one. Yeah. Because uh, I, I also think they don't let you carry in restaurants that serve alcohol, if I'm remembering correctly. So. A lot of the reasons I would, and you obviously can't carry in government buildings. It's not like you can carry in, if you go to the Capitol or something, you can't carry there either. So you start to wonder like, where can I even, where am I even going to be able to carry this gun right. <laughs> if, once I get this permit? But uh, it's been, I tried to get it when they first uh, passed their initial law. And I tried to get it again when that law was struck down and they put shall issue in place. Uh, but it was uh, kind of a bureaucratic mess at the time. And so now there's this class that now that I can get Maryland's two, 
I was like, well, I might as well go get the three. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how it all turns out. Um, but that's that's my weekend. Yeah. If anything, the process will be enlightening. But uh, speaking of uh, yeah, other developments in the gun world, talking about rulings getting struck down, you just uh, gave us a good update in a piece this week about the latest ruling uh, to target President Biden's ATF rule that uh, tries to go after so-called ghost guns. If you want to tell us what happened in this latest ruling. Yeah. So we wrote about, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, how a judge, federal judge blocked enforcement of President Biden's ghost gun rule uh, against Defense Distributed, which is sort of the company that was kind of a pioneer in the 3D printed gun space and has done a lot in the uh, you know, home CNC machines for finishing firearm parts. And so they, they've been a big player in the unfinished gun part space. And a couple of weeks ago, they received an injunction that allow that blocks the ATF from enforcing this rule against them. So people can buy the parts from them that the ATF is trying to claim are, are not legal to sell. Um, and now a couple of weeks later, that same judge has extended that same protection. It's actually a separate case, but same basic claims to Polymer 80, which is the largest manufacturer of unfinished gun parts in the country. Uh, if you've seen, you know, an 80% lower kit, you know, an unfinished firearm receiver kit anywhere basically in the country at any gun show, it's almost certainly made by Polymer 80. Uh, the P80 will be on the box. They're all over the place. You could, that's, if you're, if somebody is out there building a gun from unfinished parts, they're almost certainly using polymer 80, you know, it's extremely popular. And so now the ATF can't enforce this rule against them either. And that includes both the, so the, the ATF had initially said, well, this is really just for kits. If you sell the unfinished part alongside tools to finish said part, then that is technically a gun now, uh, even though it's obviously not, you can't put it together and make it a functional gun. You'd have to finish the part first. But that was the core of this ruling initially. Then the ATF sent another letter and said, well, actually, also, you can't sell the unfinished part itself at all. Uh, so they even expanded it beyond the initial scope. And uh, this federal judge says, yeah, you you can't do that. You <laughs> You cannot just make up law on your, you know, that's essentially what he's accusing the ATF of doing. Right. You know, and like we said before, it was just defense distributed. Now it's just polymer 80. So it's not as though the rule itself is uh, blocked. But as you point out, because these are pretty much the biggest companies in this space right now, that mm -hmm. certainly deals a blow to, to Biden's attempt to regulate this space, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... There were also a couple of other smaller companies that were initially the ones in a case called Vanderstock that, that had the rule blocked, you know, enjoined against them. And so then, then Defense Distributed came in and got their, their name added. And now Polymer 80 has come in with their own separate suit and effectively had their name added to the list of companies that the ATF can't go after for their ghost gun rule. And now that, I mean, that list is, I mean, it's sort of like if you tried to ban selling bikes and then a judge said, well, 
okay, you can't enforce this against Walmart or Target or like the or Trek, you know, the largest chain right. of bike shops in the country. It's like, well, technically there's still a rule here. It hasn't been completely enjoined. But one, it's all of the major players are now free to sell both the kit the parts and the kits again. And Paul Moretti's already started doing that uh, without fear of prosecution from the ATF. And also I would imagine if they attempted to bring any actual criminal cases against someone else, that this, this precedent is going to be uh, limiting in what they could actually do on that front, even if it doesn't technically completely enjoin them. Uh, plus, I'd expect that at some point in the near future, this judge is going to uh, rule on a, a, a nationwide injunction. He initially rejected doing that, but uh, I, it seems to me like he... If you read through this ruling, he talks about how Polymer 80 attempted to comply with the rule in good faith. And then the ATF sent out that, that letter that said, basically, never mind, you also can't sell these unfinished parts either. And that would have put them out of business was the is the claim in the, the case. And the judge, bought, you know, believed that idea. And so now we have this injunction. Right. And as you know, speaking of the ATF and putting out letters and their reaction, uh, how, how have they reacted to this latest ruling? It uh, seems like they're not exactly deterred by it, right? Yeah. Honestly, it seems like they live in their own fantasy world, the way they reacted <laughs> to this. As this ruling came out, uh, I believe it was on Sunday. And then on Tuesday, the ATF released a, an entire uh, advisory that's that was all about how they're enforcing this ghost gun rule and and you can't you know the bottom line was something along the lines of like you can't sell unfinished parts and then have another business sell you, you can't and then sell tools separately to the same person right that but it's like at this point what are you guys even you're just fooling yourselves right i mean it just makes it hard to take atf seriously as it, it, a lot of what they're doing makes it difficult to to take them seriously at this point, you know, they, they're just sort of pushing through with things that they know are not going to stand up in court. I mean, that was the, the pistol brace ban, right? It was pretty bizarre to watch them go through with that immediately after the bump stock ban, which is justified on essentially the exact same logic uh, was struck down in the fifth circuit. Like this, these rules are all just sitting there waiting to get struck down and everyone knows they're going to get struck down. And, the ATF is going forward anyway um, for what is hard to look at as anything other than political reasons. Um, you know, the president wants them to do this stuff. And so they are, regardless of how it affects their reputation, I think, among, um, you know, anyone paying attention. I was going to say, you have to wonder if it is just an attempt to save face, because that's sort of you saw this when the first uh iteration of the frame and receiver rule was published and you started slowly seeing stories come out from maybe media outlets that aren't used to covering this space talking about how oh nothing's changed in the ghost gun market why isn't anything mm -hmm. changed and then the gun control groups got involved and started putting right. statements out saying that this rule did nothing and then sure enough atf comes out with a letter that says oh you know that rule we published well it's actually much broader than we originally said and you actually right. can't sell any parts and you have to wonder if maybe the same thing's happening here they're, they're they're receiving blow after blow to the rule. 
And rather than take more criticism, they're just going to, you know, show that they're still tough on this rule. And I think it's just bizarre. It's it bizarre is to watch them do this stuff. Like it, just, and there is, it's hard to come up with any justification beyond just the political influence involved. Cause you're right. That's exactly how it happened. They put out the frame and receiver rule, which banned kits. You couldn't sell the tools alongside the unfinished parts was the, the bottom line of that rule. And then they got a lot of complaints and it didn't actually do much to affect the market because, okay, people just started selling the parts by themselves. Uh, and then you could find or make your own tools and jigs uh, in other ways. That wasn't really a uh, as much of a constraint as the president and uh, gun control advocates obviously wanted it to be. So the ATF just put out a letter that said, never mind. <laughs> This is, you know, we're completely redoing how we interpret our own rule again, you know, a couple months after we published it. So and, and of course, this didn't hold up in court. That's that's a big part of what this ruling was about. The judge uh, talked about how Palmer 80, you know, he first refused to do a nationwide injunction on this rule. And then now he's piecemeal enjoining it against these companies because later on, the ATF went further and essentially made it so that these businesses can't operate at all and uh, did so in a way that exceeds their authority under federal law. That's really the that's the other thing about these cases is they're, they're not really Second Amendment cases uh, <clears throat> as much as that might surprise some people like the, the core issue here is not the Second Amendment. The core issue is uh, agency power essentially, the executive agency power and the Administrative um, Procedures Act, which governs how far an agency can can go in interpreting a, a federal law. And essentially, the judge said, you've gone way too far. And uh, and part of it was that they pushed this envelope, envelope even beyond what they initially intended to. And, and yeah, I mean, like you watch them do this stuff and um, it's it's hard to explain any of it beyond just pure politics, right? I mean, why would you issue that pistol brace ruling, which is going to affect way more people than the go the bump stock ruling did? And why would you issue that right after the bump stock ban was was blocked in court? Like right. you're just going to lose in court. It's hard to see any path where they don't lose in the Fifth Circuit, at least. Um, you know, I guess perhaps they they hope that the Supreme Court is going to side with them, but that seems wildly unlikely, especially since, I mean, th these lower courts are striking down these rules, even without, uh, citing Bruin, which is the major Supreme Court second amendment case right now, precedent or EPA, which is the major Supreme Court, uh, precedent on limiting federal agency power. It's, they're certainly looking at the Supreme Court to save you from what the Fifth Circuit has done. It doesn't make much sense. I don't like. I, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone on any side of the ideological divide that really thinks that these rules are going to last. Right. I think that's a good point. I was going to say that the, the the current makeup on the Supreme Court is perhaps more skeptical of administrative power than we've had in a, a very long time. So it's. Yeah. I think it's a tough stretch to think that the, they're going to bail out the ATF and. and Right. Getting a capacious ruling on a, a you know 1968 gun law that somehow covers pistol braces and and frames and receivers and and such. Yeah, I mean it'd be one thing if they had initially come down on pistol braces being 
SBRs or that in 68 when they developed the definition of firearm that that, that it was this it was what it is what they're trying to make it now but the other big problem they have is that they initially for decades said that these things weren't illegal uh, that was also the big problem in the bump stock case and it's just it's hard to look at this and try to reason through why you would do any of these things outside of the political motivations. I mean, I mean, uh, just it's it's uh, it's it's very odd to watch the F ATF um, operate this way in, in such a just blatantly politically influenced way. Like these are not going to these are not going to to stand. I mean, it's just kind of embarrassing, honestly, to watch to for them to put out that advisory immediately after their rule was blocked for the in the vast majority of of cases right like okay you're putting out this advisory who does it even apply to anymore right you know <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> so uh anyway yes the atf was was very much undeterred by let me give you a quote i know i've, I've been um you know uh, pretty critical of the nra or the atf here, uh, so I'll let, uh, let Director Dettelbach speak for himself. He said, quote, people who engage in the business of dealing firearms are subject to the Gun Control Act. That means they need to run background checks and sell guns with serial numbers. That is what the ghost gun rule is about. Today's advisory is simple. If you're dealing firearms, including items that can be readily converted to a working firearm, ATF is going to make sure that you are following the same laws as everyone else. So, um, that was their perspective on why they issued that advisory several days after a judge uh, almost completely gutted the ghost ghost gun rule. Yeah, it's so. certainly an interesting choice. <laughs> as you said, it's hard to see it as as anything but uh, a political, you know, face saving uh, measure. Yeah. I mean, you can understand why President Biden keeps pushing these things because right, it's part of his agenda. His, that's his agenda. That's what he. That's his political agenda. I mean, that's what he's uh, believes in. That's what he has advocated for. He doesn't necessarily care if he loses in court. Um, and, uh, you know, you could certainly the ATF serves at the pleasure of the president to a certain degree, but like, I don't know, they they continually are uh, doing things for it seems explicitly political reasons. Uh, it's hard to come up with any other potential justification for this. So Anyway, that is uh, <laughs> that is all the time we have today to talk about this. And we are happy that you joined us. If you like this sort of reporting, if you want to help spread the news about our news, you can go ahead and like or share this podcast. You leave a review on your favorite podcasting app, or you can leave a comment on YouTube or on the reload.com where of course you'll have to be a member to leave one of those comments. But if you do become a member, that was of course the most direct way to support our reporting because that is how we fund the reload purely through member um, dues. And you get, of course, a number of perks. If you become a member, you will get this podcast a day early. You'll have the opportunity to appear on the show. We'd love to have another member segment. We have one, not too long ago with Liz Mayer, but we'd love to have 
someone else on in the future, just reply to your Sunday newsletter, which is also another member perk. You get an extra newsletter each week and uh, let us know you want to come on the show. But that's all we've got for you today. And we will see you again soon.